Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Convincing Coffee Break with me, Mandy Brown, and Richard Snape. Yes, hello. Today, we're going to do another answering of questions that were asked on a live Zoom conference that we did back in January on the Building Safety Act 2022, specifically for commercial property lawyers. Although a lot of the questions aren't specifically from commercial property lawyers, it must be said. (laughs) Exactly. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through all of the questions. So if you listen to the conference and ask the question and it wasn't answered or even if it was answered, you hopefully will get an answer today, plus a few more that were sent in. So, Richard, we've got a lot to get through. So should we get started? Mm -hmm. Please, can Richard provide his thoughts as to what the position is if a landlord deed of certificate is provided but is incomplete? Which is something that people ask me a lot. Basically, I mean, like so many things, they don't make it particularly clear in the legislation. But if you look at the, um, it's a landlord certificate, it doesn't have to be by deed. But uh, if you look at the landlord certificates in the regulations, the Building Safety Leaseholder Protections England regulations of 2022, it is, there's an important notice on the um, landlord certificate. And uh, it basically says um, that an incomplete certificate, if it's not completed and signed, it will result in the landlord being responsible for historic safety works to which the certificate relates, which suggests that if you don't fill in all the information you should fill in, then the whole thing's null and void. You haven't complied with the legislation. Thank you, Richard. Right, moving on. Does a new build flat block for flats require an FRA? The block is less than one year old. That's a fire safety risk assessment. Uh, In the original fire safety order, new builds are not exempted. Whoever's doing the new build guarantee, NHBC, whoever, should be doing a separate fire safety risk assessment. But uh, certainly a one-year-old block should have a fire safety risk assessment, yeah. I've actually seen new builds, albeit years ago, actually fail on their fire safety risk assessments. I came across one where the paint would ignite if you were, you know, sort of the fire near it or something. So, yeah. Okay, thank you. Is a fire safety risk assessment required if there are no internal common areas in the building? We don't know because the problem is that uh, the Fire Safety Act of 2021, Section 1, I mean, the original legislation, the fire safety order, says it uh, applies to dwellings. So, the fire safety order says it applies to the common parts of dwellings, but not the dwellings. But then Section 1 of the Fire Safety Act of 2021 says that you have to have a risk assessment for the whole of the structure and exterior, any attachments, any external doors and windows, and any internal doors that dwellings that open into the common parts. So, on the face of it, it doesn't actually mention anything about uh, needing to have common parts you know, the exterior must have one of these things. I don't think it was intended, but I'd be tempted to ask the fire safety risk assessment and expect the other side to tell me what to do. I might want to try and get something from the insurers that the insurers might still pay out the claims. Okay, thank you. Can you please define two or more dwellings? I is a house converted into two flats, no communal internal areas, two dwellings. Again, we don't know because, I mean, it's the, the legislation, the Fire Safety Act of 2021 and also Section 156 of the building Safety Act, which amends the original fire safety order, says it applies to where you've got uh, two or more sets of dwellings. And it's just the most bizarre wording, whether two or more sets of dwellings means two dwellings or four dwellings. I don't think anybody has a clue, quite honestly. One day we might actually find out, but I don't think there's an answer to that one. Sets of dwellings seems to suggest four, but I might be tempted to ask in relation to two and expect the answer to come back get lost. 
And a subsequent question to that, is an FRA needed? Well, that's, you know, what the, I think that's the sort of the issue, whether it's two or more sets of dwellings, because if it is two or more sets of dwellings, then you might need a fire safety risk assessment. I do not think it was intended in the legislation, but like all this legislation, I mean, all of it, it is so badly drafted. Hey, thanks, Richard. We understand that the current landlord cannot charge a leaseholder for sending any notice or certificate, e.g. leaseholder deed of certificate. Can the landlord instead charge a fee for providing a landlord certificate in response to an LDOC, a landlord deed of certificate? Again, it's not clear. I mean, on the face of it, they're not supposed to charge for professional fees. And if you can take that as landlord certificates, I suspect, um, well, we don't know. Do you remember we did a podcast on a case called um, Adriatic and uh, Long Leaseholders of Hippersley Point? I do. Which is actually about um, costs of going to tribunal. It's on its way to the Court of Appeal now, but not until later this year. So we might talk about it a little bit more. And we'll do a podcast when they do. Perfect. So moving on. Is a building regulations enforcement now 10 years rather than one year? In England, on October the 1st, it went up from one year uh, the enforcement period, regardless of the bridge, is to 10 years. But uh, what isn't clear, and I find it absolutely amazing, I think we talked about this before, is whether it's retrospective or not. Since I was last talking about it, the building safety regulator, who's got uh, overseen role over building control now, says, uh, well, it says on their website it's not. I don't think there's any statutory backup to that, though. I suspect local authorities will perceive it as not to be retrospective. Perfect. So who would serve a landlord certificate where there is an RTM company, where the RTM company is responsible for maintenance? It's got to be in those circumstances. The um, seems to be the landlord, the current landlord. They don't sort of deal with RTM companies, right to manage companies in the um, in part five, the leaseholder protection service charge caps. Uh, so it looks like it's going to have to be the landlord. How do we check it? Presumably the property has been registered. I presume this is for higher risk buildings in England, which are either 18 metres or seven or more storeys in height, 18 metres or more with two or more dwellings. Currently, there isn't a register, and so um, it's not easy. The CPSE inquiries uh, changed at the end of September, and the CPSE basically asked the question, firstly, is it a higher risk building? And secondly, you know, provide details of registration and uh, see what comes back from that. If I can't get a response from that, I don't think I'd want to buy the reversion. And uh, I would adapt that if it was a residential property and ask the same questions. You know, is it a higher risk building? And please provide, uh, if it is, you know, please provide details of registration. Okay. What if you're only financing and this is a question. I have not had the bank raise this question. People not familiar. I suspect this means uh, in context of higher risk buildings in England as well. Uh, I think you're quite right. The banks don't seem to be au fait with it at the moment, whether they become aware of it. It took them quite a while to become aware of the leaseholder protections and normal residential conveyancing. It was half a year after they came in before they, the lender's handbook changed. I don't think the banks are fully aware of higher risk buildings yet. But if one hasn't been registered, I, I suspect before too long, you won't get some financing for it to buy the reversion thing. Do you need to tell the bank if they have their own solicitors acting for them? Well, their own solicitors should deal with that. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I just wanted to interrupt to remind you that Lawshaw provides these courses and podcasts as a value-added service. 
We can only offer them free thanks to the support of our amazing clients. So if you get value from attending our courses and listening to the podcasts and would like us to continue providing them to you for free, all we ask is that you support us by sending us your bespoke title insurance inquiries. That's all you have to do. It's completely free service with no obligation to take out a policy, although we hope you will. So you have nothing to lose and a whole lot to gain. And now back to the podcast. Could flying freehold also increase height? Yeah, I can't see why not. It sort of might tip you. Uh, it's still a story if it's a, it's a flying freehold block. Though, though, again, the legislation hasn't really thought about it, but uh, I can't see why not. What about exemptions? I note hospital sites may have some exemptions. Well, in terms of higher risk buildings, I mean, it's Part of it is more for the construction lawyers than myself, but in terms of higher risk buildings, there's something called the golden thread, which I touched upon but didn't deal with in detail in the course. Basically, there's a you, know, you have to comply in terms of the design stage and building your planning permission, uh, then the construction stage, and then the occupation stage. And what I really dwelt on is the occupation stage. For uh, hospitals, they come within the design and construction stage. We have to sort of build and so on and design the hospital in the correct way, but not the occupation stage. Also, and well, I know I was talking to some solicitors about it in an in-house course I was doing not so long ago, just before Christmas, and uh, no one seems to have a clue what's happening in relation to hospitals at the moment. And uh, they're just being left half-built and the likes before people can actually understand what the, the construction stage actually requires. Is there really no way to register a high-risk building late? Again, it was something they didn't think about. The registration started April the 6th and ended October the 1st, which was a Sunday. The government's saying otherwise, but uh, on the face of it, that was the time period you should have registered. But hopefully we'll get some sort of changes on that because it was just nonsensical otherwise. It's a criminal offence not to have registered by October the 1st. For the accountable person. Does the value of flat, a flat as at the 14th of February 2022, reflect any diminution in value due to the existence of defects? No. I mean, all, what you're supposed to do is uh, if the flat was sold since December the 31st, 2020 on the open market, then the sale price is deemed to be the, the value on February the 14th, 2022. And if you're before that, then you're supposed to get hold of official copies find out the, how much it was last sold for on the open market, then turn to uh, in the schedule, in the regulations, and there's a sort of table as to you know, how you calculate what it was worth then. So it doesn't actually take into account the value, the actual state of the property or the fact it's a death trap now. If a building is under 11 metres, can landlords recover for the cost of removing cladding via service charge or is this excluded? No, they can still, everything depends on it being a qualifying lease or 11 metres. Obvious proviso to that is it if it's five storeys. So it could potentially, you know, sort of as an alternative, uh, that you could have a four-storey, less than 11 metre high building, which in case it would apply. But if it's uh, a five-storey, less than 11 metre in height building, it would apply. But if it's, a, you know, if it's not one of those two, there's no benefits whatsoever. So Richard, why are local authorities excluded? The building could be fixed, could be a mix of leaseholders, private and council. Local authorities are excluded. I mean, Grenfell itself 
was a local authority, obviously. What is excluded is local authorities from the contribution condition, which is where you, together with your associates, have got a net worth of more than £2 million per affected building on February the 14th, 2022. So local authorities are excluded from that, but they come within the rest of the legislation. Registered providers of social housing as well. So for a mixed-use relevant building, can a landlord simply charge the commercial tenants to cover the cost of relevant defects? The Schedule 8, I think it's paragraph 11, but then take me up on that, basically says you can't charge any other tenants an additional amount and it doesn't distinguish between commercial and residential so presumably not it's highly unlikely it would come within the service charge anyway the provisions thank you so in relation to restrictions of service charge for safety work can freedom of contract be used to agree a fee for costs incurred uh you can't i mean there's anti-avoidance provisions so i think not in a mixed-use building over 11 metres, the residential flat holders have protections in terms of what is paid under the service charge. Does this apply to service charge recovery for the commercial occupiers? No, no. And there's no, unlike residential, where there's a whole massive legislation on questioning the reasonableness of service charges and tribunals, there's not a single piece of legislation in relation to commercial premises. It depends on what the lease says. There's not even a built-in reasonableness test. Does the retrospective lease extension point apply to statutory leasehold extensions only? No, it's any, any lease extension voluntary, which are the majority as well. In a scenario where leaseholder protection doesn't apply, e.g. owners, as at the 14th of February 2022, owned too many other properties, is there any need for them to produce a leaseholder deed of certificate? Same as in a scenario where a landlord cannot pass on the costs, they're over the net worth requirements, for instance, do they have to provide a landlord certificate? Well, they can, the leaseholders still can qualify if it's if the flat's their principal home, even if they own more than three dwellings throughout the UK. But otherwise, they can't, and uh, they're not a qualifying leaseholder, so the leaseholder deeds of certificate would be irrelevant. In relation to the landlords, because you know, landlords, if the flat's worth less than 175000 or 325000 in London, or if they meet the contribution condition, or if they're associated with a the developer, they can't charge anyway, but they're still expected to provide a landlord certificate. But another podcast we did, you remember a case called Will and Caterba, GNO Properties, we did? Certainly do. Yeah, uh, you can listen to that on Spotify. The tribunal decided they got no jurisdiction to require the landlord to provide a landlord certificate. So if the landlord can't charge for safety work anyway, there doesn't seem to be any real sanction according to the first tier tribunal. It is only a first tier tribunal, it's not really a precedent. But on the wording of the legislation, I think they're correct on it. Okay, so now we move on to some extra questions sent in after the conference. So we start off with a hypothetical situation. So the current owner does not qualify for landlord certificates as owns more than three flats. Thus, I believe... No, it, it's not the current owner. It's the owner on the 14th of February, Valentine's Day, second anniversary, coming soon, 2022, which is the case. And also, if it's their principal home, they can still qualify. So I, I believe as a result, a new buyer cannot obtain a landlord certificate. But if there was an EWS-1 and structural engineer report stating the building does not need external cladding, will a buyer still be unable to obtain mortgage finance? And what is the current attitude of the lenders? 
Well, strictly the EWS ones are totally different than the um, you know, the sort of building safety act provisions. And uh, originally they were meant to be for 18 meters or more in height buildings, but then in January 2020, the government produced guidance that said they might be required for less. The government withdrew that guidance uh, a couple of years ago now. But some of the mortgagees, if the value is, say, we want an EWS-1 for a three, four-storey height building, which wouldn't come within the leaseholder protections under building safety, they still want it. But I can't believe it's a problem if there's an EWS-1 that says there's no issues in relation to fire safety. And uh, structural engineers report to that effect as well. And will the absence of a landlord certificate affect future marketability, in your opinion? Well, potentially, yeah. I mean, it does say a lot of the mortgagees in their part twos, this is obviously for residential, and saying you've got to tell us whether it's a qualifying lease or not. I suspect it will affect your ability to get a high loan-to-value mortgage. And as far as you're aware, is there any prospective legislation envisaged to overcome this problem for innocent buyers who may be snared? There's a private member's bill that's been promoted by Lord Lytton, but we'll have to see if that might well go the same way as lots of private member's bills. And the government's too busily concentrated on rushing through the leasehold and freehold reform bill at the moment. So that won't be thought through either. And uh, we'll be doing endless podcasts and courses on that. Okay. I know that there can be no liability for safety work if a flat is worth less than £175,000 as at the 14th of the 2nd, 2022. My question is, if the owner of the flat who did not live in the flat at the relevant date owned five properties in the UK on that date, is the owner entitled to claim the benefit of Section 4 of Schedule 8 to the Building Safety Act, or does the owner lose that protection because they own five properties? No, I'm not a qualifying leaseholder. If it was, that was the case on February the 14th, 2022, it's not a qualifying lease, regardless of who the owner is currently. Okay. So, yeah. so a question on complex title structure. Where you have a title structure with superior slash intermediate landlords, which landlord needs to provide the landlord certificate? Is the person responsible for the repair slash insurance slash maintenance of the structure slash common parts slash exterior? Or is it that the landlord entitled to the reversion of the apartment lease slash qualifying lease? Or is it the same person who is the principal accountable person? The direct landlord of an apartment leaseholder may not be the party with an interest in the certificate being accurate. I think you've hit on another problem there. It's not actually made that clear. It's nothing to do with principal accountable persons because that's in relation to higher risk buildings. I mean, the legislation itself, it refers to the current landlord and seems to envisage that the current landlord is the one who provides the landlord certificates. If they can't find, if they don't have the information within, they have to notify any other relevant landlords, superior landlords and the likes who have three weeks to provide the information. But uh, it seems to envisage that the way it, I interpret it, and it's not clear, is it seems to be the, the the actual immediate landlord. But like you say, in the more complex structures and the bigger blocks of flats, the immediate landlord is not necessarily the one who's responsible for repairs. It's the superior landlord. And it doesn't make too much sense. I mean, I'd be tempted to have both of them serving. Okay, and moving on to our final question, which you may have answered already. The value of apartment let on a qualifying lease. Does the value of the flat as at the 14th of February 2022 need to reflect any diminution value due to the existence of defects slash work requiring remediation under the Act? I mean, as we mentioned previously, I mean, it sort of doesn't seem to be an issue. It's a sort of 
if it was sold on the open market from after December the 31st, 2020, that's the value on 20, February 14th, 2022. And otherwise, you base it on official copies and the sliding scale and in the regulations. Not exactly exact. Okay, so there's a subsequent bid on this saying, I asked this because if so, it would depress the value of the flats, potentially if the flat in question is not let on a qualifying lease so as to benefit from the service charge protections, the value is already depressed. Any comments on that? Like so much of the legislation, it's sort of, it's once you're a qualifying leaseholder, you have all kinds of benefits. And if you're not a qualifying leaseholder, you don't. And uh, you're not actually looking at the actual value of the property on February the 14th, 2022. That's not the way the legislation works. In fact, the legislation doesn't work at all. Okay, well, thank you very much, Richard. I think we've covered a lot of ground there. And um, I think that uh, makes for a lot of interesting listening and a lot of food for thought. No doubt we'll be revisiting these things in the future. There you go. Until next time. Thank you. You have been listening to another episode of Convincing Coffee Break the only podcast for busy convincing professionals brought to you by Lawshore Insurance Brokers, an award-winning UK provider of title insurance. For more information on our free conferences, go to www.lawshoreinsurance.co.uk where you can download recent conference recordings.